BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Episode 277 of The Bowery Boys. The New York comedy scene. A marvelous history. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And before we get started, Greg, I just wanted to mention that we do have a very exciting live event coming up in January. On, in fact, Friday, January 11th, 2019, we are really proud to be a part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival, which will be uh, which will be held at the Bell House in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn. We will be taping an upcoming show on the life and times of Walt Whitman. In fact, the show is called Whitmania. So for tickets for that show, head to cityfarmpresents.com slash events. And we hope to see you there. Today, we'll be looking at New York's role in shaping the industry of live performance comedy, or what would become known as stand-up comedy, and the rise of America's first comedy clubs in New York starting in the 1950s and 60s. Because New York's role in all of this has been different, after all, from the comedy scenes that developed out in L.A. or in Las Vegas or Chicago or in any number of other cities. Because it was here in these theaters and supper clubs and comedy clubs that comedy developed with a distinct Mm -hmm. New York accent. Yeah, I would just say this show risks being a rather broad survey of comedy with all different aspects of comedy. But we're going to point out specifically how New York City itself is embedded into this modern comedy tradition in ways I think that'll surprise you. So we'll be talking about places in New York that have been instrumental in the comedy scene, but we'll also be talking about New York born or based comedians, Mm -hmm. you know, from Joan Rivers to Jerry Seinfeld, Eddie Cantor to Eddie Murphy. (laughs) And of course, the show is slightly inspired by the Amazon show, The Marvelous Ms. Maisel, which takes place in the New York City comedy scene in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they are not sponsoring this episode. We asked and they weren't interested. (laughs) So pull up a chair. And don't forget the two drink minimum. As we laugh our way through the history of New York City in comedy. Well, first of all, that was, of course, the theme to the sitcom Seinfeld, which we will get to much later in the show. 
So where do we even start here? This does not have a beginning, does it? Um, right. I mean, unless we go back to Greek choruses and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. No. We're starting the show today where I like to start many of our stories, Greg, yeah. on the vaudeville stage. <laughs> because today, when you say New York's comedy scene, what do you actually think of? You know, well, What I am imagining is, I guess, the scene that really erupted in the 1980s. These comedy clubs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a comedian with some sort of blazer with gigantic shoulder pads telling jokes in front of a brick wall. Exactly. And we'll get to that part. That's the third act in today's story. I also, you know, think of the guys walking up to you at Times Square saying, hey, you like comedy? You like comedy? Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to actually get you into one of those clubs that still exist today. But we have to start way back, dial it back, in fact, to an era before stand-up comedians even existed. Before stand-up? Like, what was that? How did you make people laugh back then? Well, people went to see comedic acts in theaters. There were comedy troupes performing, you know, like gag routines and funny songs and slapstick. But for the most part, in the turn of the century in New York, those acts were part of a vaudeville show. They were taking places on the vaudeville stages in New York. And in these theaters, big names might stay, you know, for several weeks before moving along the circuit. There was a whole national network of vaudeville theaters that by 1928 was controlled by the Keith Albee Orpheum Circuits. And Greg, this was huge. There were 700 theaters by this point and 15,000 entertainers working for them. And these were all over New York City by the turn of the century? Yes, different grades of vaudeville houses were around town. um, But the really big theaters included Hammerstein's Victoria, uh, which opened in 1899 at 42nd and 7th Avenue. We talked about that in our Times Square show recently. And then, of course, there was sort of the crown jewel of vaudeville, the Palace Theater at Broadway and 47th, which opened in 1913 and is still there today. So if we're talking like a hundred years ago or Mm -hmm. almost a hundred years ago in these theaters on these vaudeville bills, who are some entertainers that we might know today that we might recognize? Well, the list of notable boldface names is really long uh, because many of these performers who were successful on vaudeville would then transition into film, into radio, and into TV careers. In fact, many of these people are people you might not even associate with the vaudeville stage. You know... George Burns and Gracie Allen, Buster Keaton, Abbott and Costello, W.C. Fields, Bob Hope, Jack Benny, Fatty Arbuckle, the list goes on and on. Even Mae West, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy. Pretty much all the names of comedy that we know of got started in vaudeville and played on New York stages. Another troupe of actors who I think really sort of epitomize what happened here in the 1920s and 30s would be the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. They started out initially as a family singing act in 1905. They toured the the nation's vaudeville houses, and then they kind of accidentally got into comedy in 1912 after an incident we don't have time to go into, but it was in Texas. It involved a mule distracting the audience, (laughs) and then Groucho sort of like (laughs) responding, snide comments, and Mm -hmm. everybody started laughing at him, and they realized that actually they didn't have a good singing act. They had a comedy act. So in 1914, their uncle Al wrote a comedy sketch for them called Home Again, and that would premiere up at a vaudeville house in the Bronx in 1915, but then it was such a hit that it moved down to the Palace Theater in Times Square, and that really launched their career in vaudeville. And from there they became like 
big stars, I guess. They were big stars, but they had disputes with the big vaudeville bosses. So they were lured away from the vaudeville stages and into Broadway shows, actually like legit Broadway shows. So they had a review in 1924 called I'll Say She Is at the Casino Theater. And then they had their big musicals, The Coconuts in 1925 and Animal Crackers in 1926, both at Broadway theaters and both of which would be later turned into movies. Movies that were shot in Queens at what is today the Kaufman Astoria Studios. So you've given a very broad picture, and, and already in the early century, how people can become huge stars mm -hmm. and transfer that onto other mediums. But let's take a big step back here. I want to be able to visualize all of these people on stage and what it is they're doing, because we're saying that they're doing comedy, but the kinds of things that they're doing and performing are very different than the things that we would go out and see at a comedy club today. Mostly, mm -hmm. yes. In the 1920s, there were all kinds of different acts. Um, there were comedy duos or troops, you know, that had a certain shtick mm -hmm. to them. I would put the Marx Brothers in that group. Okay. You know, they were usually up to general mayhem on stage. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, another troupe that fits this is Ted Healy and the Three Stooges, which huh. started in vaudeville in 1922. Ted Healy was their straight man, and the Stooges, they played off of Ted Healy's straight man routine, and they would start fighting with each other, and, you know, again, mayhem would develop. And they wouldn't even have their first movie until 1930. There were also just gag numbers. Now, remember, this is part of a vaudeville lineup. Meaning that there were, like, maybe 10 or 12 things on a bill. Not all of them were comedy. Oh, not at all. They they were bringing in the comedy numbers to actually be interspersed between a woman who played the flute while like in ballerina slippers and somebody else who was like doing a high wire routine and somebody else with an elephant. So even though these are very big names or would become big names, no one would actually go see the Marx Brothers on stage and have an entire show. Well, they, they might be the headline attraction and the yeah. Marx Brothers often were um, or the Three Stooges. When they, when they got a, to a certain level, they were that the top of the bill. Yes. Lower down, probably, on the bill were gag scenes. Mm -hmm. These were like a whole act constructed around a silly setup, like a bad singer on roller skates, um, a funny song that was being sung by somebody who <laughs> was wearing like a weird outfit. You know, Fred Allen, who went on to success on radio later, he had a whole act in vaudeville where he just played a terrible ventriloquist. And that was his whole <laughs> gag. He was so bad that his ventriloquist dummy would actually fall apart during the act. <laughs> he would take this on the road and just do this again and again, this kind of like yeah. uh, trick with the puppet. And another nice thing about an act like that is it was really small. It could be performed in front of the curtain while they were setting up a, a bigger number behind them, something with a set. And of course, if they were bad, they could get like yanked off with a hook. Or is that just urban legend that that happened? No, no the hook actually existed. And as pointed out by Cliff Nesteroff uh, in his excellent and hilarious 2015 book called The Comedians, mm -hmm. the hook was invented in the 1880s by a man named Henry Clay Minor, who ran an amateur night at Minor's Bowery Theater. Now, I looked into this a little because, I mean, uh -huh. the hook not only comes from New York, but from the Bowery. <laughs> and Minor operated a, a pretty major chain of vaudeville houses around New York. But his biggest was his Bowery Theater. 
And there he created this amateur night every other Friday. The winner would take away, you know, valuable gifts. But the Bowery crowd, as you can imagine, could be kind of (laughs) raucous. They were internationally known as being like a surly crowd, a surly audience. Nasty. Well, Miner's son, Tom, created the concept of using a shepherd's crook, you know, basically like a staff with a hook at the end of it, Mm -hmm. to yank bad acts off the stage and and kind (laughs) of maybe prevent them from getting pelted with something dangerous. So comedy in the early 20th century is mainly on a vaudeville bill, short numbers, usually gags or, or skits of some kind. And there were other kinds of acts. Sometimes the comedians sang. Mm-hmm. And we need to address the fact that sometimes they sang or acted or did their routines in blackface. Now, blackface, it's so offensive to us today. But in the 19-teens and 20s, it was a staple of American comedy. People like Bob Hope even Mm -hmm. did blackface. Eddie Cantor, in fact, was so famous for his blackface that he got poached by Florence Ziegfeld uh, for his Ziegfeld Follies, where he was a top attraction and and made a lot more money, and he appeared in blackface singing next to Burt Williams, who had broken the racial barrier um, as a black performer appearing in shows alongside white casts. Some objected to this, but most people didn't, and it would... It would really remain a part of American popular entertainment until really after World War II. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just blackface. A major component of many of these acts were disparaging immigrant groups, making fun of Irish, Chinese, or Eastern European immigrants. Or Germans, yeah. Yeah. And that's a tradition, actually, that continues today. Yeah. Here's, Here's a little clip featuring Eddie Cantor. So in these vaudeville houses, how would they go from act to act? Would they bleed into each other? Did they have cards that were just like, and now here's this act? Yeah, you've seen, you know, like the Bugs Bunny cartoon with <laughs> yes, the, the easel and the little placard. That's and, what I was thinking of, actually. And the, yes. ta-da, from the orchestra. Well, that did exist. And it wasn't until a, a revolution happened in the 1920s at the Palace Theater a man with a microphone stepped forward to introduce the next act. And he did it in a fun and engaging way while making the audience laugh. He was basically the first master of ceremonies Mm -hmm. for a vaudeville show. And his name was Frank Fay. 
Faye would stand there and crack jokes about the performers and get the audience warmed up. And in doing so, he basically invented the persona of the stand-up comedian. Interesting that before him, they were usually like caught up in some sort of a routine. Mm -hmm. But he was himself standing on the stage talking to the audience and making them laugh. And he didn't have any gags. He didn't have a funny costume. He didn't didn't have a shtick. He just wisecracked. Unfortunately, Frank Faye was also not a very nice guy. He was anti-Semitic. He was widely disliked by his colleagues, even though audiences ate him up. So we're getting through the end of the 1920s, near the end of Prohibition. And, of course, there is this major new medium that has captured America's hearts, and that is the motion pictures. Did many of these comedians... Uh, transfer onto this uh, outside of the Marx Brothers? Well, some did, but let's not forget that it wasn't until 1927 that pictures talked. (laughs) Up until that point, they had been silent. And in 1927, out came the jazz singer featuring vaudeville star Al Jolson Mm -hmm. singing in blackface. So throughout most of the 1920s, teens and 20s, film comedy stars really had to rely upon their facial expressions. Mm -hmm. But as movies grew more popular in the 20s, and then especially with the beginning of the talkies, films overtook vaudeville as the dominant form of entertainment in the United States, and that only accelerated into the 1930s with the Great Depression because films were new and exciting, and going to the movies was a heck of a lot cheaper than going to see a vaudeville show. But this major new craze, which mm-hmm. is very exciting on the on the horizon here, is certainly doing some damage to the vaudeville circuit here. Yeah, remember the Orpheum circuit that I mentioned yeah. with its 700 theaters? Mm-hmm. Well, the Keith Albee Orpheum circuit in 1928 was purchased by RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, and it was renamed the Radio Keith Orpheum, otherwise known as RKO. Ooh, a movie company. Those vaudeville houses, most of them, would now primarily be movie houses. Well, you mentioned radio, and it seems to me that many of these comedy stars, you know, who actually, like, rely on their voice Mm -hmm. for much of their comedy, it seems like they would make a nice transition into radio, not film. Well, and lots of them did, um, but they couldn't all make the leap because many of them were suffering because a radio audience was really far away. People were listening in, like, Cleveland in their living rooms. They didn't have the feedback of a giant theater filled with people laughing at their jokes. And it really wasn't until later that they had studio audiences. So at the beginning, it was just like, well, it was kind of like you and me right now in the studio. (laughs) Could you imagine if we had a studio audience right now? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Crickets. We'd really realize how unfunny we are. (laughs) Eventually, those studio audiences would be brought in to help them out. And one important detail about those radio shows, most of them were controlled almost entirely by the advertisers that they could get. So unlike... TV today, or even, you know, our podcast, which has multiple sponsors, Uh many radio shows had one advertiser. You know, the show was named many times for that advertiser, like Jack Benny's Canada Dry program, or the Ever Ready Hour, or the Texaco Star Theater. All of these shows were being broadcast out of New York City. And many of them actually were on NBC and would be broadcast out of 30 Rock starting in 1933 when NBC moved in. There were so many radio studios there, in fact, that it 
earned the nickname Radio City. I should add that many of those movies that you were talking about, they would once they would go to these movie palaces in the 1930s, that they would have a bit of a vaudeville feel to them as well. There would be several acts before the movie came on, and some of those acts would, of course, be comedians. Right. That would be doing a little number, and then there'd be a little bit of music, and then there would be the movie. So that was sort of the entertainment of the 1930s. There was also another form of more glamorous entertainment that was happening around this period, the nightclub or the supper club. These large venues, food and cocktails, dancing, variety, entertainment. I mean, these started in the 1920s, but once Prohibition was over, they were huge by this point. The supper clubs, of course, I'm referring to places like the Copacabana, El Morocco, the Stork Club, Latin Quarter, the Cotton Club. Blue Angel. They would have floor shows with singing and dancing. There would be a live orchestra. There would be like just dozens of people entertaining you while you were eating or having your martini. And they would also include then comedians? By this point, these MCs would become big, glamorous stars in their own right. And in many cases, they were singers themselves. So they had to be funny and they could like, you know, carry a tune They would be the comedy centerpiece um, with broad appeal, only slightly body. Most of their material here would be like set up punchline, the sort of like traditional type of jokes that they would be doing. And they would be doing this whole act in front of a big band? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, imagine how exciting that would be, the energy of having a comedian, but like backed with the whole orchestra. Like at the Copacabana, for instance, which opened in 1940 at 10 East 60th Street, so right on the Upper East Side, you would have perhaps the most famous comic duo of the mid-20th century, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and they would stand in front of the audience, do like a little shtick, but then they might start singing. We're getting back to the senior member of the team, my good partner. The reason he's the senior member, I suppose, is because he's older. He's older, and I won't say how old he is, except his social security number is two. I happened to glance at his driver's license the other day. It said, for covered wagons only. These are the jokes. Let's face it, they're not going to be any better than that. But I'm proud of my partner because he's very talented, and his talent is only exceeded by his alimony. (laughs) Your edification, there's the darling of the pizzeria set, my good partner, Mr. Dean Martin. Here he comes. And they might bring out, you know, Carmen Miranda. Um, or they may come out dressed as Carmen Miranda. You never know. But, <laughs> um, if they had the fruit on hand. <laughs> right. But they were part of this production. Uh, so where it was like they were telling jokes to the audience. They were really part of this sort of bigger musical production that was happening. And this sounds really expensive. Oh, oh, yeah. And these were all over the place, you know, in all the major cities. Atlantic City, for instance. I should add, saying Atlantic City... These were very fancy, and in most cases, they were actually controlled by the mob. In fact, most of the nightlife in New York was pretty much controlled by organized crime because 
with the repeal of prohibition in 1933, you know, the mob already had infrastructure from all the speakeasies that they were running. So they really controlled nightlife. Comedians were paid by the mob. The mob controlled who could perform and their careers could end with just one poorly timed joke. Yikes. <laughs> Milton Berle, who got his start here in the supper club scene, he was performing at a club called Vanity Fair and remarked, made one little like a jab at uh, a gangster and remarked, quote, oh, it must be novelty night. You're with your wife. <laughs> well, after the show, that particular gangster got up and stabbed Milton Berle in the face with a fork. Things have taken a very dramatic and violent turn here, Greg. <laughs> So it's the 1950s, and comedy is living large in these high-priced supper clubs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's it's everywhere by this point. In fact, there are so many people coming to New York City to be comedians that there are hundreds of agents. It's all pretty much centered around midtown Manhattan. And you can go to, like, Lindy's Deli, for instance, and uh, see sort of -of out-of-work comedians, like, talking it up with agents, talking it up with joke writers, because even by this time, a lot of people weren't writing their own material, they were pairing up with joke writers. I mean, in fact, this was a very, very prominent way many of these comedians in supper clubs were coming up with material. But the number one reason that comedy was so big in New York in the 1950s is, of course, television. Just as radio had done in the 1920s, starting in the 1940s, the new television industry here in New York created hundreds of new jobs for talent and writers, and they had all this new airspace that they had to fill. So A vacuum. And they needed <laughs> yes. talent, cheap talent, that was easily accessible. And comedy was easier to produce than drama because it didn't need big sets or large casts necessarily. Comedy shows already essentially had a template which they copied in these early days of TV, which was the variety show format. TV was ideal for comedians because you had all your powers in play, your voice, your physical comedy, and you were intimate with that comedian. And also because these early shows were live, and that's how many of these comedians were trained, were to do things in a live environment. So in a way, it's kind of like a step back to vaudeville. Yeah, it is in a way. Just You're not in a theater with them. You're in your home. And we have a whole show uh, in our back catalog about New York and its role in the development of the TV industry. I just want to point out something very, very fascinating about some of the major icons of early American television. I'm going to give you a little list here. Okay. We have Sid Caesar from Your Show of Shows, who was born in Yonkers to Jewish immigrant parents. We have Philip Silversmith, a.k.a. Phil Silvers who was born in Brooklyn, to Russian-Jewish immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. We have Melvin Kaminsky, a.k.a. Mel Brooks, who was born in Brooklyn, to Russian and German-Jewish immigrant parents. We have Carl Reiner, born in the Bronx, to Austrian and Romanian-Jewish immigrant parents. You know, these aren't just side players. These are the men that defined early American comedy. And what's extraordinary is that in these years after World War II, that art was being dominated by men who came from the Jewish immigrant experience, who all grew up in working-class and middle-class neighborhoods here in New York City. 
But had this group of men been trained and brought up through the vaudeville circuits? Oh, yeah. A lot of them were on the vaudeville circuit. A lot of them performed out in the Catskills, which was a popular resort area for a lot of Jewish New Yorkers. Generally speaking, though, what they where they didn't come from was this nightclub scene because a lot of it was still being governed by anti-Semitic hiring practices. So these two things are happening in parallel. You have like a, the supper club scene and the sort of like TV. TV for all. But but of course, some of the stars of the Supper Club scene would, of course, come to television, like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. But this comedy that they're performing is still kind of straight-laced. It's it's middle-of-the-road comedy. Mm -hmm. And it's really at odds with something new that's happening in New York starting in the 1950s. There are all these extraordinary cultural movements that are taking place in New York that are turning the mainstream inside out. And almost all of this is taking place in Greenwich Village. The village, which by the 1950s is a center of sort of bohemian culture, beatniks, yeah. poets. Yeah, folk music, jazz, beat poetry, off-Broadway theater. But Anything I, that's fun. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think what gets overlooked is that comedy is officially reborn in the late 1950s here in Greenwich Village. Or to restate that, comedy is reborn in different ways in different places in the 1950s, L.A. and Chicago. But here in Greenwich Village, a very, very New York voice develops. Okay, so here we are. In the intro, I mentioned that we'd be talking about the particular New York accents yeah. in the comedy scene. Uh-huh. What is that voice? <laughs> what is that accent? Well, let me ju- – we have to explain the places where the comedy is performed okay. to get to that voice. Village culture is dominated by music clubs, cafes, and coffee houses that would all be open late into the night. And we're talking 1930s to the 1960s. Okay. Places like the Village Vanguard, Cafe Algogo, which opened in 1964, Cafe Hua, 1959, what? The Bitter End, 1961, and you know, on and on. And, and my personal favorite, the Gaslight Cafe, which opened in 1958. And those are all virtually neighbors in the village uh on McDougal and Bleecker. And also, don't we see those, just to go back to our point about the Marvelous Miss Maisel, these are the places, and this is the place that is featured on that show. That show is actually, it actually features the Gaslight Cafe on that show is where she performs. Now, imagine all of these, they're very dank basement, small stages, cigarette smoke, serving coffee, wine or whiskey if they have a liquor license, and many of them didn't. It would be all-night entertainment, uh, similar to a variety show. You'd have a beat poet, folk singer, but it would be reflecting viewpoints that were out of the mainstream and places where you could drop a lot of those formalities. Now, take a comedian Put them in that kind of variety show, but lose the intellectual inhibitions that you would have to kind of put on in these big supper clubs. Mm -hmm. And you're creating a new kind of comedian. It's less about a scripted gag, because after all, you're performing in front of a jaded crowd, you know, following perhaps a severe performance by a beat poet or a folk singer. You know, you can't do a canned gag after that. You're going to be thrown out. Right. And so those sort of like gag routines would be the things that your audience's parents would be watching 
back in the suburbs yeah, on right. TV. What people wanted were something – they wanted honesty. They wanted something personal, raw, and confessional. Almost not like a comedy set at all. It was almost like monologues. And so the other key thing here is that you are about a foot away from the performer, right? So you're physically intimate with that performer. You can't do these other kinds of comedy. So as a result, a new kind of comedic star rises starting in the 1950s with people like Woody Allen, Mort Saul, Bob Newhart, Phyllis Diller. I mean, there's so many. I'm even afraid to even do that list. But mm. I, well, I just want to focus on just a couple more here. Perhaps the most famous one was a man named Leonard Alfred Schneider, who was born to a Jewish family in Long Island, but in 1947 would change his name to Lenny Bruce. Now, he had actually worked out in L.A. in the 1950s and had started with that generic comedy style, but got frustrated and began to experiment with a more explicit sensibility, which set him apart as an outrageous character and, as a result, lost him a lot of television work. He began making appearances in nightclubs and and had gained such a kind of like scandalous reputation on the West Coast that he actually made a re-debut essentially in New York uh, in 1959 at a club called The Dens. He was so notorious. He even performed at Carnegie Hall in 1961. And so how was Lenny Bruce exactly changing comedy? Well, his comedy would be very political or or would reflect the things in society. And he would often deliver it, of course, a monologue strewn with expletives. He was Uh not afraid of cursing and not afraid of sexual innuendo or not even innuendo, just like flat out like sexual content in his shows. Well, that sounds like that could get you in trouble. Well, flash forward to April of 1964. Lenny Bruce is performing at the Cafe Agogo here on Bleecker Street. 1964, what's happening in New York that spring? I believe that the World's Fair is about to open. Out in Flushing Meadows, and the city is cracking down on all vice and places of ill repute, including gay bars, bars that have largely African-American patrons, and of course, comedy clubs with filthy comedians. <laughs> Gotta scrub it clean, because otherwise people will not be visiting. And of course. They, they need to be going out to Robert Moses' World's Fair. Well, Bruce and the owners of the Cafe Agogo were arrested, taken to court, and found guilty of charges of obscenity. Did he go to jail? He actually appealed and never went to jail, but his career was over. His cabaret card was revoked, so he could never work in New York again. He died on August 3rd, 1966, of a drug overdose. And yet today he's still considered one of the kings of comedy. Yeah. Did he ever actually record his routines? Oh, that's right. We should add that comedy albums here in the 1960s are are making big stars out of comedians. And Lenny Bruce does have some recordings, but many of the sort of like richer monologues, shall we say, obviously those weren't recorded and sold because they, they were too scandalous for the day. Uh, But we can, however, hear some material from Lenny Bruce's protege, a New Yorker of Irish heritage named George Carlin, who also got his start at these clubs around the same time and also built a career of pushing boundaries. How old are you? Do people ask you that? Bother you with that? How old are you? (laughs) All they really want to know is, how long have you been alive so far without dying yet? How old are you? Have you noticed that we always give the most recent age? We always tell the top figure. 
We never mentioned all the other ones that we still are. I think you're still all the ones you were. You're still 24, still 19, still 11. That's for sure. Just because you turned two doesn't mean you stopped being one. In fact, it's your second time around on one. You're getting better at that one every year. So when they ask you how old you are, tell them anything. So pick one up. Now, there are people that lie. Some people will lie about their age. Take off three years, five years. I say if you're going to lie, lie big. <laughs> Take off 27 years. How old are you? 11. <laughs> well, act 11 and a half, actually. I'll, I'll be 12. <laughs> and so that was George Carlin. I want to mention a couple others really quickly. A Joan Alexandra Malinsky, a.k.a. Joan Rivers, who was born in Brooklyn to immigrant parents, which is wonderful. Did you know that she performed at the original Duplex? Really? So the Duplex used to be at 55 Grove Street, and it was on the other side of where it is today. It's a sort of staple of the gay West Village, but it was a comedy club also in the 60s. You would also see African-American comedians like Dick Gregory in many of these same clubs. And what's interesting is that Dick Gregory was the first African-American comedian to appear on The Tonight Show, you know, which was another great vehicle that comedians could use. But a lot of black comedians could perform in the village because they were integrated to some degree, even by the late 1950s. So African-American comedians could perform in the village. Was that it? Um, there, there was, of course, a supper club ballroom scene that was for black audiences, and much of those, many of those places were in Harlem, like the Alhambra Ballroom. But the most famous stage, if you were a black comedian in the, in the early 20th century, was actually the Apollo Theater on 125th Street. And what's specifically amazing about this is that, because of course they were being paired with musicians, you know, because it was a bill of, of all different entertainment acts. Sure. The legends that comedians were performing with, I mean, for instance, Moms Mabley, who was a classic African-American comedian of the day, uh, would p- be performing alongside Cab Calloway or, wow. or Count Basie. Wow. So that's up in Harlem. Then you've got a scene in The Village. And what is happening in the comedy scene in Midtown at this point in the 1960s? Yeah, so the supper club scene was kind of dwindling. You know, it was being replaced. There were there were coffee houses and things in Midtown as well. But surprisingly, the future of comedy would actually be changed in a really small venue in Hell's Kitchen. Tom, do you remember the restaurant Don Giovanni's? I think we've eaten sure, there a few yeah. times. Delicious pizzas <laughs> in the theater district. Yes, uh, West 44th and 9th Avenue. It was a Vietnamese restaurant in the early 60s, and they closed. And the property was bought by a Korean War veteran named Bud Friedman. In the winter of 1963, he opened a small coffee house here for that after-theater crowd. He ended up calling it the improv or the improvisation. Oh, like for improv comedy? Actually, believe it or not, no. Unplanned, spontaneous theater. That's what we call improv theater today or improv comedy. Like the audience throws out (laughs) cues and then you have to do things. So that that was happening. Like, in fact, it was being revolutionized in Chicago by this time in the 1960s. But no, this place, the improv, was actually a nod to Friedman's lack of planning. (laughs) And he wrote a book about the the improv and describes it as basically flying by the seat 
seat of his pants. So that's <laughs> so why it's about I was, him as a business <laughs> yes. owner. In fact, he didn't even fix the walls when it opened, which is very important. He didn't put any drywall up. So what he did is he left that exposed red brick and then put a tiny stage in front of that red brick wall. Whoa. So yeah. like every comedy club set is basically oh. modeled after the improv. Yeah, now – at first, it's actually not a comedy club, believe it or not. At first, it was just a coffee house. The, the, the first night, it was the cast of How to Succeed in Business stopped by, and they did some numbers. Did some numbers without really even trying. <laughs> But slowly throughout the years, it became popular with comedians. And at, at then at one point, it was only comedians. So because of that, there had never really been a place in New York where you could go to just hear comedians. So because of that, this place became immediately popular and influential. And that stage and that brick wall and that microphone became associated with this new form of comedy that was carving itself up, the stand-up comic. So no music, no other acts, no poetry. Yeah. And this was all born here at the Improv. Yes. I mean, this is sort of the beginning of the true comedy club scene. Do they know this over at Don Giovanni's? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a plaque today and everything. You can you can go in. I, in fact, I, had, I was having lunch there and some tourists came in and took a picture of the wall. <laughs> there's another, there was another comedy club that opened in Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn, actually, in 1962 called Pips. That also became well-known in developing the talents of early comedians, including one man by the name of Jacob Rodney Cohen, uh, who was born in Long Island and grew up in Queens. He would change his name to Rodney Dangerfield. Field. And then in 1969, he would open another comedy club up in the Upper East Side where he would then perform on a regular basis. That club named Dangerfields at 61st Street and 1st Avenue is still with us today. And he actually opened up that club because he had been touring the nation so much. However, his wife's health declined and she later passed away. That was the impetus for him actually settling down in a way in New York, being able to still perform comedy and host other comedians and take care of his daughter and his son. His daughter, Melanie, later told USA Today, quote, it was a unique experience because he was home every day and worked at night. He opened Dangerfield so that he could stay in New York to raise my brother and myself. You had these new comedy clubs. They were really kind of incubators for talent. And then, you know, there was still a lot of TV industry in New York City. In fact, the late night shows mm -hmm. were almost all here. and Including the, the Tonight Show. Jack Parr and the Tonight Show, who was always looking for comedic talent. And this, of course, was the ultimate stage. So Right. So and his show would be taken over in the 60s by Johnny Carson, who would keep it here in New York. So – as we get to the 1970s, and we know how New York is in the 1970s, we actually have this incredibly thriving comedic scene that's happening, and a huge number of comedians who are becoming major stars. But things would take a very different turn for the city and for the city's comedy scene in the 1970s. We'll get to that story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Okay, Greg, so in the 1970s, the comedy scene here in New York matured even further. And in the 1980s, it exploded. And I think it's fair to say it exploded into what seemed like a thousand comedy clubs. (laughs) Yeah. The streets were littered with comedy club flyers and (laughs) and handbills. Yes. And aspiring comedians. Mm -hmm. So Dangerfields opened in 1969. What were some of these other major comedy clubs that would help define the scene? Well, just a couple years later in 1972, also on the Upper East Side at First Avenue and 77th, Catch a Rising Star opened, sometimes referred to in the biz as simply Catch. (laughs) And much more successful than its companion, Catch a Falling Star. (laughs) Right, or Drop a Falling Star. (laughs) Um, Famous alumni that came through Catch a Rising Star included Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, Rosie O'Donnell, and the list goes on and on. In the 1990s, it moved down to West 28th Street between 7th and 8th, and it spawned satellite 
comedy mm, clubs as mm-hmm. well that are still active, although the New York catch has closed. And if this is 1972, I can right. imagine that some of the like handlers over at the Tonight Show are kind of like waiting by the stage door to get some contact information of some of those comedians. Well, yeah. And so the bookers were regulars at all of these clubs trying to find new acts to put on the show. However, in 1972, that very same year, Johnny Carson made a big move uh, when he packed up his entire show and he moved it out to Burbank. Mm. And with that move, he also relocated the center of gravity in the comedy world. Because remember, if you wanted to really make it in the comedy business, you had to appear on The Tonight Show. Yeah. And you got like extra credit if he liked you and even invited you (laughs) Uh over to sit down next to him on the sofa and to talk to you. And by moving his show to L.A., the most important comedy club in the country became the Comedy Store. In L.A. In L.A., Uh which was a comedy club that opened that same year, 1972. So scouts for The Tonight Show now hung out at the Comedy Store. But this didn't really stop comedy clubs from opening. No. In fact, uh, just a few years later, in 1975, another big new club opened called The Comic Strip, uh, located also on the Upper East Side (laughs) at 2nd Avenue between 81st and 82nd. I mean, who knew that the Upper East Side was so funny? Uh, The club featured initially more than just stand-up comics, but they switched over eventually to comedy only. Hmm. And it launched the careers of a lot of big New York comics. Most notably, I would say, Eddie Murphy, who first appeared here at the comic strip when he was just 18 years old. Wow. And from there, he, he was seen by a booker for a new show called Saturday Night Live. And later on, as he was once he was a successful comedian, he would go back to the comic strip and he would discover, quote unquote, a comedian named Chris Rock. Wait a minute. We're up here on the Upper East Side. Let's let's back up a little bit. You just mentioned the words Saturday Night Live, which is sort of filling the vacuum, right, of the comedy airwaves here in New York City with the loss of The Tonight Show. Right. And the creation of SNL actually figures into the Johnny Carson story. Oh, okay. Now stick with me for a second, because back in 1965, NBC had started to, to broadcast a show on Saturday or Sunday, it was up to the affiliates, called The Best of Carson. Mm-hmm. And it was a repackaging of the week's Tonight Shows. Okay. In 1974, Carson told the network, now he's off in L.A., that he wanted to take Mondays off. So he asked them if they could take that Best of show from the weekend and yeah. actually air it on Monday nights. That left the affiliates looking for something to for that yeah. 11.30 slot on mm-hmm. Saturday nights. So they approached Lorne Michaels to develop a new show, a sketch comedy show that would appeal to younger demographic. Michaels put together a ragtag, uh, the now legendary group of comedic actors mm-hmm. for this show that included Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, and others for that first season that premiered on October 11th, 1975, and was hosted by George Carlin. Ladies and gentlemen, George Carlin! Oh, wow. What's kind of interesting, perhaps even ironic is the fact that it has this influence on the stand-up industry, but it's not a stand-up show. Right. Right. It it only features a stand-up monologue at the beginning of the show. Presented by... 
the host, yeah. the guest host, who walks out and basically does a stand-up routine. But really, it's more of a sketch variety show. There's even music. And we'll have to jump over the list of notable comedians who have come from <laughs> yeah, Saturday sure. Night Live because it's like everybody. It's too much. But I just wanted to add that whatever your opinion is of Saturday Night Live and in future seasons, whatever, if you find it funny or not funny, you cannot deny that Saturday Night Live is perhaps one of the most New York shows in its identity of anything that's been on television. I mean, think of the credit sequence. Mm-hmm. Think of the set. Everything reflects what's going on on the streets of New York City. The wailing saxophone. (laughs) But obviously other networks are trying to replicate this success and diving into the comedy field here. And in the 1970s, there were all kinds of comedies that took place in New York, but they weren't really stand-up shows. You know, I'm thinking of All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son, Mm -hmm. etc. But really... It was another network, a cable network, that further developed the careers of many of these comedians. I'm talking about Home Box Office, Mm -hmm. or HBO. In the 1970s, HBO started producing movies that were stand-up routines that they would then show on HBO. And notably, these would be uncensored. In 1975, they started with an an evening with Robert Klein, their first hour-long special. Mm Mm-hmm. 78, there was George Carlin at USC in 1979, Richard Pryor live in concert in mm. 1983, um, getting back to SNL, Eddie Murphy, Delirious. These were seen by millions and millions of people, and the comedians could speak in a way to these millions of people that they couldn't speak on broadcast television. It's extraordinary that Lenny Bruce essentially got punished for being obscene on stage. And then like not even 10, 15 years later, you have stars making a fortune telling this very same kind of humor for a larger audience. It's almost like there had been some sort of cultural revolution. (laughs) So combine all of these things, The Tonight Show, um, Moving Out West, Saturday Night Live, starting HBO specials, All of this fueled an interest in live comedy and encouraged, you know, aspiring comics to move to New York or to L.A. and try to make a fortune off of making people laugh. Well, I'll take issue with the fortune part of that, because if we're talking just these basic comedy clubs, they were not paying a lot, if at all. No, but I mean, you could start there. um, And if you were seen by the right person, the right booker, you might wind up on a TV show or you might be in a movie or get your own HBO special. Here's a quote from a 1985 article by Stephen Holden in The Times. He writes, the meteoric ascent of Eddie Murphy from stand-up comedy to Saturday Night Live to major movie stardom has swelled the numbers of local up-and-coming comedians and given them new horizons to contemplate. Ten years ago, so 1975, there were perhaps 200 aspiring stand-up comics in New York. That number has increased tenfold, he's writing in 1985. By the 80s here... Comedy had become cool. Caroline Hirsch, who created the club Caroline's in 1981, called it the, quote, rock of the 80s. (laughs) She opened Caroline's in Chelsea in 1981, and then it moved briefly to the South Street Seaport area um, before finding a home in 1992 at Times Square uh, between 49th and 50th on Broadway, where it still is today. Mm -hmm. And Caroline's is, you know, that's kind of like the highest profile of the clubs. It was big in the 1980s for discovering New York comedians like 
Stephen Wright, but it gave gave a home to Pee Wee Herman, to Sandra Bernhardt. <laughs> Look, I remember moving here in the early '90s and thinking it was very fancy. It was like you know, it was the oh, top. Yeah. It was still the tops. Well, and it still is, uh-huh. and it still is home today to the New York Comedy Festival, hmm. um, which just celebrated its 15th anniversary this month. But even down in the village, there were new smaller clubs opening, like the Comedy Cellar, which opened in mm-hmm. 1982 on McDougal. And was literally like a cellar. It was, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's underneath it's, a restaurant, uh-huh. a restaurant that I ate in yesterday, <laughs> doing a little bit of like reconnaissance. Yes. Um, and it's interesting because you have to, to use the bathroom. You have to go downstairs and walk through the comedy club. I mean, that is like a 60s style entertainment venue. With a brick wall. <laughs> yes. Big names uh, still perform at the Comedy Cellar. And the opening scene, we should note, of Louis C.K.'s show, Louis, was shot actually him going into the Comedy Cellar. So the 80s were the decade of comedy in New York City, which is very interesting. So this is, I guess, a comedy boom. Yeah, and not just in New York, but all over the country. But because there were so many clubs opening, that also threatened the business a bit because, you know, there could be overcompetition. It could drive down the the ticket prices for the comedy clubs. A New York Times article from 1992 suggests that all the free comedy that was on cable TV by this point had actually been hurting the business. Here's a quote from Barry Weintraub, uh, who was the publisher of the Comedy USA Industry Guide. He said, quote, Although there are still more than 400 full-time comedy clubs around the country, people are selling cut-rate tickets, papering the house, anything they can do to stay in business. People are telling me that they have to work twice as hard to stay even. Hmm. People, you see, Greg, could actually stay home and watch it for free. They could watch Eddie Murphy on HBO. But there were new channels that were dedicated to comedy. In fact, in 1989, HBO launched a cable channel called the Comedy Channel uh, that was focused really on stand-up routines. And the next year, in 1990, MTV Networks launched their own comedy channel called Ha, uh, which focused more on like vintage sitcoms and things like that. And those two channels would be merged in 1991 into something called the Comedy Network, which would be renamed Comedy Central. But I would say that when I think 1990s and comedy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it is, in fact, a kind of we will we know now sort of a bad time for comedy like the improv closes in new york catch a rising star closes a lot of these clubs close but in another way it kind of reaches its apotheosis in the 1990s especially with a collaboration between two brooklyn comedians one of them larry david born in sheepshead bay brooklyn mm-hmm. and another jerry seinfeld who was born in brooklyn and raised in massapequa Both of these comedians got their start in places that we've mentioned throughout this whole show. Jerry Seinfeld got started at the Improv, and Larry David wrote for Saturday Night Live. They put their heads together to create a show about a stand-up in New York City, which would, of course, be Seinfeld, this TV show that debuted in 1989 and ran nine seasons. And it's an embodiment of the personal stand-up style. 
Seinfeld's plots arise out of his stand-up routine. Do you remember? Think back of watching kind of an early episode. They used to be framed by his stand-up routine. He would be on that stage in front of the brick wall. And yes, and the sort of the show that kind of like merges from that stand-up is sort of like an embodiment of what those jokes might have been in that routine. In fact, when the, the first episode was tested for audiences, many didn't actually like it or understand the show's concept. One of the comments was, why are they interrupting the stand-up for these stupid stories mm. <laughs> and then the the best part of it all at least you know from our perspective as new yorkers is it embodies this like true new york city personality in every single episode which even is even though <laughs> which is ironic because it's not taped in new york at all it was out in la as well old people in florida they drive slow and they sit low <laughs> right that is their motto the state flag of Florida should be like a steering wheel with a hat and two knuckles on it. Now, there's other great things, which unfortunately we're going to have to bypass, that are happening in the New York in the 1990s. David Letterman's show is a great resource for comedians. You have major names in the 1990s that are – many of them are New Yorkers, such as Adam Sandler, Jonathan Stewart Leibowitz a.k.a. John Stewart, who was born in New York City, and the aforementioned Chris Rock, who just becomes more of an icon, a superstar in the 1990s. He, he grew up in Bed-Stuy. And even though we don't feel like talking about him, we should also just mention Bill Cosby was also pretty important to the history of comedy of Comedy, in yes. And the Cosby Show was even recorded in Brooklyn. Before a live studio audience. But I want to focus on one aspect of comedy in the 1990s because it's sort of a new transformation. The new generation would look at these sort of comic stylings and kind of find it rather old-fashioned. In the same way that comedians in the late 1950s looked at the sort of the comic stylings of that era. Mm -hmm. Comedy was, for lack of a better word, taken over by the hipsters in the 1990s. A new comedy scene emerged in New York in the East Village and the Lower East Side. Now, this is sometimes called the alternative comedy scene. It's happening all over the country in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago. It's also happening here in New York. Alternative to what? Well, alternative, first of all, to the established comedy venues, because in many cases they would be in music clubs. It was almost like going back to like an old form of like the comedy would go into like a, a music performing venue. They were but, not performing at Dangerfields. No, not at first. Those in the alternative comedy scene. There was also like a quirkiness that sort of reflected the kind of culture that was happening in the Lower East Side in the 1990s and 2000s. Two clubs I want to point out that are the most important. One of them is Luna Lounge, uh, which opened at 171 Ludlow Street in the Lower East Side. It was a huge venue for alternative music, but then on Monday nights, they would have a very important comedy night called Eating It, which gained a reputation for being kind of intelligent comedy. To quote from the New York Times in 1996, the performances of Luna Lounge are not typical stand-up comedy, but what is often called alternative comedy, or more cynically, thinking person's stand-up comedy. The contrivances that comics rely on to work an audience in a traditional club don't work at the Luna Lounge. Risks are taken and new ground is explored. And it still manages to be funny. Yeah, I mean... 
think of all the weird TV shows that are on today and the we- films with like kind of like quirky sensibilities. Most likely those people that are behind those are in some way connected to the quote alternative comedy scene. There was also another place I want to just mention really quickly in the East Village called Rafifi, which was on 11th Street, also transformed comedy in the 2000s. That closed in 2008, and then promptly these sort of like this alternative comedy scene headed out to Brooklyn, more or less, to Williamsburg, Bushwick, and other places. For one thing, it was cheaper. Uh, Yeah. So you've taken us up to today. Yes. uh, But there really are still... A few aspects of New York's comedy scene that we didn't even have time to address. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. That we have to get rushed by. The first one is, of course, drag. Because those queens are funny. <laughs> it's a it's it's a comedy performance in a dance club or a bar of some kind. For more information on that, there's a show from earlier this year that's sort of a sister show of this one, if, if you, you will. will. <laughs> that is on the history of drag. So that is happening, and that's really developing on a huge level starting in the 1990s. What's another one? Improv. And now you're not talking about the coffee shop over at Don Giovanni's in in Hell's Kitchen. You're talking about improvisational comedy. Improvisational theater, which is this, yeah, people on stage improvising comedy routines, often from audience suggestions. Now, this is a kind of a separate wing of stand-up comedy, and it's often associated with Chicago, thanks to the performer and teacher Del Close. But in terms of New York... The scene really changed in 1996 when the Chicago improv troupe Upright Citizens Brigade moved to New York. A few years later in 1999, they moved into their first actual dedicated stage in Chelsea in an old porn theater on West 22nd Street. Now, flash forward to today, I mean, they're a much bigger production. They have a new stage actually that just opened this year on 42nd on the far west side. And any bold-faced names you want to drop well, uh, who came from the Upright Citizens well, Brigade? Well, just a few. Again, I feel silly. We're going to leave some people out, but Amy Poehler, mm-hmm. of course, is an original member. The The ladies of Broad City, uh, Ilana Glazer and Abby Jacobson. Um, SNL's Kate McKinnon is a, is a alumni, as is Donald Glover. So these are huge names that are working and like, oh, the Upright Citizens Brigade, they're, you know, a, a big contribution to their career. But before we leave, Greg, I just have to ask you if you would tell the listener a little bit about your late 90s experience in the comedy <laughs> scene in New York City, because you had a brief foray yeah. into stand-up comedy. Now, before I jump into that, I want to thank Nat Towson, who does a show at Upright Citizens Brigade's East Village uh, stage. And sometimes I perform in his Variety Hour, and everyone should go see. It's, one, um, it's the first Monday of every month. And that is a great and very funny guy. Yes. And it was very helpful in putting together the show, actually. But in the 1990s, I did have a short stint with a comedy troupe at Gotham Comedy Club. I performed with a woman named Lynn Harris, who, with her partner Chris Kalb, had created this website called Breakup Girl. I was a contributor to that website. In which she would give advice to people going through breakups. Yes, and it had this sort of animated superhero component. It was, it was amazing. Like, yeah. So anyway, because she, was a, she came from a stand-up comedy background, and a lot of her cohorts did as well, they had a monthly show. And so because I was writing a column for them, I eventually became a character on the show. Named? Named Gregoire. Named Gregoire. 
And yes. so um, we don't need to dwell upon what my character was. I just but- <laughs> remember one night you were ready to take the stage at the Gotham Co- Comedy Club when somebody else yeah. <laughs> came up on stage well, and sort of stopped the show. Well, we had been told before we went on that um, Jerry Seinfeld was in town and that he was going around to these different stages and testing out material and that they were also following him around with the camera crew. This would, of course, be the result of the film Comedian that was about Jerry Seinfeld. So, and this is like, this is actually what was amazing about the New York comedy scene is that there's so many stages that if you are a comic with some cachet, you could just appear at four or five different places and test out material. And test out material like you're on the like subway or taking the taxis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really amazing and like LA has the same kind of thing. It's extraordinary. Anyway, so we knew he was going to come on at some point, but we went ahead with the show. It was during my section, and I was doing some sort of lame, like, Bjork joke or something. I don't even remember. When we got the word that Jerry Seinfeld was there. And so literally, like, it went from me doing my hammy shtick to Jerry Seinfeld, who did like a, I think like a thirty-minute set. Oh my god! <laughs> and then we we just never How appeared do you again. Follow that? You just like. <laughs> but I can now say, with all and with all honesty, that I have opened for Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> we should also mention that we both read and loved this book, The Comedians, by Cliff Nesteroff. Highly recommend the book, as well as a podcast, an entire podcast devoted to the history of stand-up comedy. In fact, it's called The History of Stand-Up. Yeah, we just discovered it as we were putting this show together, and we thought, we thought it was very enlightening. It's, it's uh, broader and L.A.-centric, but it's a, it's a great show. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we will have some photos of some of these venues and some of these famous performers. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash boweryboys. Those who support us on Patreon will actually get some audio of Tom and I hamming it up on a famous New York City stage. We have the audio finally of our, our Halloween show at Joe's Pub. That audio is already up on your Patreon exclusive feed. So if you'd like to hear that show, uh, sign up and be- become a supporter of the Bowery Boys. That's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We're also excited about the new walking tours that we are uh, developing with professional tour guides in New York City. These are being developed around our favorite and most popular episodes. So you can check out those walking tours over at Bowery Boys Walks. And Bowery Boys listeners can get 20% off their walks by using special offer code FALL2018. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.